I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with design impresaria Stacy Garcia. Starting at the beginning, Stacy Garcia is a global licensing and design company led by someone who has one foot firmly planted in design and the other in the business side of things. Stacy is a powerful voice in the in the business and She's done something truly amazing with her business. While she calls herself a creator and an artist first, she has used the licensing arenas to structure her core business on hospitality and still create a multi-line business structure. For those designers and architects listening, this will give you some quantifiable takeaways as it relates to creative design and hospitality, but you're also going to get some excellent business strategies and actionable ideas that will help you structure your business and ultimately increase your earning potential through licensing opportunities. In this episode, you will hear Stacy define the structure of a successful partnership. These thoughts include one-offs, multi-year deals, single-piece deals, or the full line collection and non-exclusive licensing partnerships. Stacy also talks about what happens when someone steals your designs and your products. Do you protect yourself, your intellectual property, or not? Because if you start a line, your ideas will get stolen. You're also going to hear about creating and distributing design content, building community, promoting your platform, and making new connections. So get comfortable and enjoy your drive or whatever it is you're doing while enjoying this episode of Convo by Design and this chat with Stacy Garcia. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online walkerzanger.com. I don't know, maybe. We'll see. Although everybody's talking about like shutting down travel for like people are getting fucking crazy. You know what? That's actually the best place to start Um, because you you have a you've got a big company and as big as New York is, you can't operate exclusively. You have especially in design, you have to go places and. It's it, boy, it's so interesting, isn't it? Last year, the big conversation was tariffs and how tariffs was going to affect the design trade, and now it's 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 coronavirus, it's COVID nineteen, it's you know, do we want to get on a plane? Do we want to go into groups? And we're starting to see all of these trade shows. You know, Solana is being moved. Um, there have been a number of others that have been either moved or canceled. The rug show here in Los Angeles just got moved. It's yep. How do you how do you navigate that? How do you plan for that? I mean, I think it's hard. I, I, you know, for me, I think it's kind of like our new corporate policy is buy travel insurance because, mm. he, you know, it's, you just don't know what's, what's going to get canceled next. And it's, look, I think for us, and it's interesting because I literally had this conversation with my nine year old last night because she's in a panic. <laughs> really? Her. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. her health, uh, whatever, the school nurse, right? Um, came in and talked to their classroom and all the classrooms about hand washing and, the, you know, how you prevent yourself from getting sick, whether it's coronavirus or other viruses. And, and there's fear. And unfortunately, you know, in this age, um, that's what sells, you know, that's what gets people on social media. That's what gets people on watching the news, you know, is like, it's a catastrophe. And, 
And so it's kind of like, what's the next thing that everybody can get scared over? And I don't know, you know, look, I, I think our human brains are wired for it, but I, I, you know, you sort of have to just live your life and be smart about things and, and not get in a total panic. It's true at the same time. And, and listen, Stacey, you're, you're a strategist, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I consider myself one as well. And to watch everything that's happening, is, it kind of dovetails into what I've seen happening in design and architecture over the last five years, three years, in, in it's been speeding up. In the last year, it's just been crazy. This desire to design for wellness, you know, sustainability started with the whole green thing. And the, the whole green thing didn't really make a whole lot of sense, but people felt good about it. Mm-hmm. And, and that led into sustainability. Sustainability led into healthy living. Healthy living led into designing for wellness and creating products that make people better instead of just look pretty. They're, yeah. actually, they're actually beautiful inside and out, right? Yeah. I mean, listen, you're, you're a California boy, and I feel like the wellness concept is nothing new to people who are West Coast you know, or people from different areas. I mean, if you look at, you know, trends from different locales, wellness is embedded in the culture. It's not like a new philosophy. Yeah, um, and, and we're a little more woo-woo here than, than elsewhere. Always. I mean, my God, I remember being 12 years old, going to visit my uncle who lived in Santa Cruz at the time, and he's, you know, driving us, uh, you know, down the Pacific Palisades, and it's a beautiful view, and there's a circle of people who are standing up, you know, everybody's hand is touching the other person's hand. And we're like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're having a moment. as right. It happens often in California. Like right. just, you know, they're probably meditating by the, you know, by the water. But at 12 and, and as a New Yorker, I mean, my God, I was a Queens kid. I was a city girl. Like it just seemed super weird to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and and then then you become an adult and and eventually wellness makes its way to the east coast and you know I'm I'm an avid uh Krupalu goer cuz I like doing retreats where I'm totally unplugged you know right um so yeah the concept of wellness i think is being accepted more in mass today and not just as sort of um like you said the woo woo circles with people who probably smoke too much pot and you know meditate all the time it's becoming something I mean, there's apps now, right? Like meditation apps. So it's it's encompassing us holistically. It's where we live. It's how we work. It's where we play. It's the apps that we're downloading. It's the, you know, everything from the whatever crystal beads that people are wearing to the type of furnishings they put in their home. Um, so I do think it, it's more of a lifestyle and people are more conscious of it, you know? Totally agreed. I, I want to back up for a second. Mm-hmm. You're a really you're a really interesting case study in design and licensing, the differences between the two and how the two work together. Which would you say you are first, a a creator designer or a licensor marketer? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, my soul in my soul, there's an artist, so there's not even a question. Like, I'm a designer first. I'm an artist first. I definitely see the world through a visual lens, you know, I'm, I'm a tactile person. I love getting my hands dirty. That's, that's really who I am in my being. And it's hard to take that out of the way I approach business and licensing became kind of, uh, the way of being able to get design concepts and thought process out into the world and be able to, to put partnerships together. And, I focus actually a lot of my business originally, my core business focuses on hospitality. So it's not only design and licensing, but it's also been very much through the lens of travel and experience and hotels and um, making people feel welcome in a space and also creating, you know, environments or working with interior designers who create environments that not only make the guests feel welcome, but also provide the best return on investment for the people who are building these spaces and operating them. So it has to function, you know, both from the experience and also profitability. So it's been really interesting. And I know we were talking coronavirus. I mean, it's definitely one of those things for the travel industry also, like it's rocking the travel industry right now in certain parts, you know, certain parts of the world. So I think you sort of have to have your eyes open when you're in any sort of business as to, 
you know, where what the waves are that are impacting uh, economies. Where did, and I'm I'm curious. Where did, how did you get started? Where 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 did the design part of this start? Because I I, I kind of want to draw a timeline between where you started in design and then sort of the evolution and the progress and sort of how you how you created the company that you have now. Yeah, I was very fortunate. So my background, I've talked about this, you know, on other interviews, but happy to share it with you. So I actually um, grew up a kid who was born to two hippies who were like fans of the Grateful Dead and rode a motorcycle and sort of followed the dead around the village. Um, so really open. So I know I joked about the California moment, you know, <laughs> people in the meditation circle. I'm sure my parents would have been like leading it. Um, <laughs> and they actually, you know, got married, got pregnant and figured out that they had to get it together or that that was their desire at that point. So my father ended up in med school in Guadalajara, Mexico, and that's where I was born. So I, I grew up, you know, with sort of moving around a lot as his, um, career took him to different places, you know, born while he was starting med school. And then, you know, through his residency, et cetera, I moved eight times as a kid. And I grew up with parents who were really like very much about kind of peace, love and happiness and find your passion and the money will follow. It's not about the money. It's about, you know, doing things you love, contributing in a nice way to society, you know, all of these things. So I, they sort of, you know, honed in on a passion I had for the arts. I think most children are very naturally expressive and creative and artistic. And, you know, and then we find our path or that gets squashed out of you at some point. And my parents nurtured it. And so I was really fortunate that, you know, even as a kid, that was where my extracurricular activities were. It was where my interests were. And, you know, I think with anything, you get enough positive feedback and, and you find your path. And I was fortunate to have two parents who really cheerleaded the process. So I, I have a degree from Syracuse University in um, surface pattern design, which was part of their visual and performing arts school. And uh, the rest is sort of history. Like surface pattern design, we learned how to design everything from wallpaper to textiles to dinnerware to wrapping paper, like anything that had a repeatable pattern. We were trained in not only how to put things into technical repeats or how to paint the designs, you know, at the time CAD was very new, but also on the technologies that existed, you know, back in the day on how to reproduce it, you know, what the printing methods were, what the weaving methods were, that kind of thing. And, and so when, when you got out of school, you decide to get into design. Did you, did you work for another designer first or did you come out straight away? Oh yeah, I, I did um, work for other, a couple other places first. So, um, again, was fortunate that my degree was so niche that there was a pretty solid network of companies that sort of said, hey, I need a surface pattern designer. And sort of a bigger um, network even in Europe, and I did some study abroad in London also as part of my studies, but I was fortunate to land a, an internship at Ralph Lauren. Um, I was exposed at that point to their home furnishing studio got to sit in on meetings, you know, when they were talking about sort of their next collections, how their divisions were chunked out, you know, what, what their layering, their management layering was. Like, this is all stuff that, you know, you're sort of taking mental notes on um, and just being exposed. I mean, you know, when you're an intern, I think the good ones are like a sponge. Like, they just want to learn as much as they can. And so that was the first time I was really exposed to the idea of licensing. I, I didn't know what it was up until then. And... Um, and I was also exposed to their document closet because half my job was like folding antique fabric swatches and getting them organized. So it wasn't all glamorous, but it was definitely, um, I think it was one of those light bulb moments where it was like, wow, like you can partner with companies and they'll use your name and, and help you produce it. Like you don't have to figure it all out. There's ways to do this um, where everyone gets to be successful. You know, it, it's so. it's so interesting because I was I was recently speaking to a group of of soon to be designers and mm-hmm. was really interesting because there's still this this pervasive thought as new designers come out you know this this you go one of two ways one being you decide you want to be a designer because people tell you what great taste you have 
And so mm-hmm. you design, you know, your parents' house, and then you do your living room, and you take pictures of it, and you put it on Instagram, and then people say, "Oh, that's so great! Come do my house," and that's how you become a designer. I think it is such a disservice to both yourself, the business, and one's future clients to do it that way. And I I put that in context because I've had the benefit of talking to people like you, who have come out of school and gone and and put in the work under under another flag and learned so much more than they ever would have learned just by doing it themselves. Yeah. You know, I think there's many paths, you know, and, and I think that's like a Hindu comment, but like there's many paths to one truth. Um, in that respect, they're talking about, you know, the God energy. But I think with, with design or with anything else, I think there's many paths to success. And so as much as I would love to take the elitist approach and say, you're right, you know, I mean, I went to design school and so did all my clients and it would be a disservice. The reality is some of the most talented people in the industry don't have the degree hanging on. Their yeah, wall. no, 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 no. I Listen, I totally get that. And I'm not saying it's the degree that does it. Yeah. Um, I, I, have a, I have a philosophy and, and it's kind of sussed out and proven true. You know, nobody gets there to, to success, that is, without a couple of things. Right, you don't get there without talent. Right, you don't get there without a little bit of luck, and you don't get there without help. Um, nobody I know has has been successful doing it one hundred percent themselves the whole way. You know that is very true. And so when I consider, I I, I hosted a panel at, at West Edge Design Fair, and I had um, Timothy Corgan on one side, Michael Berman on the other, and uh, Genevieve Trousdale in the middle. And mm-hmm. G- Genevieve had worked for both Michael and Timothy. And now she has her own firm and she has her own people that are working for her. What was interesting about the conversation, and it was so eye-opening that you have all of these successful designers and the institutional knowledge learned by working for somebody else, you know, having access to their systems and structures and procedures and policies. And it doesn't mean, like in Genevieve's case with, with both Tim and Michael, it doesn't mean that they were right in their processes. Actually, she came in, changed everything, and they're better for it now. But, right. But the ability, and it's not the degree hanging on the wall, it's the knowledge and experience that you get. I guess it's learning from somebody who has already made the mistakes you're potentially about to make. Absolutely. I mean, that's where, you know, the whole idea of doing these kind of internships or um, apprenticeships back in the day, right, before you would go and get a formal education, you would basically apprentice for a master, you know, for a number of years and learn their trade and learn their systems and and then be, you know, set out into the universe to do your job there. You know, so I agree with you. I think there's absolutely nobody really successful it's rare to see someone who just gets there totally on their own. You know, most people are, have mentors and cheerleaders and other people who are lifting them up and supporting them and, and helping them to, to their success. And I think any successful person you would ask would always say that, like, oh, I had these people to thank. Like, my success is not a one-person show. But, you know, to, to sort of the point of needing the design degree, I think, like you said, you can apprentice for somebody and learn. I actually... Um, hosted a podcast where I interviewed Deborah Lloyd Forrest, and she's one of the most successful hospitality uh, designers and design firms. And she sold um, recently, you know, so that she could sort of help to grow what she had built, but it was a hundred people deep and now is um, part of Perkins Eastman, I believe. And so they're, you know, a thousand people deep with architects and designers, but a pretty massive firm in the hospitality world. And she's not a trained designer. So, you know, she, she apprenticed, like you said, she worked for somebody else, learned their method and, and then flew. I mean, she just, she had the talent, she had the business acumen and, um, you know, her, she's, she's a legend, you know, she's a platinum circle holder in the hospitality design world, which is, you know, kind of one of the highest achievements you can get. So it's interesting, you know, when you look and, um, I think my, my perspective has changed and, you know, even today, when you look at interior designers or like you said, sort of who's getting the deals, who's putting their mark on things, it can be really frustrating, you know, to your point. You know, there are people out there who have millions of followers on Instagram and are, are getting deals 
um, you know, licensing deals and product deals and all this stuff, and they're not formally trained. And, you know, it, as a designer, you're like, well, it, it's not my taste or it's pedestrian. I mean, listen, trust me, I travel in circles. My clients, my friends, many of them are formally trained, um, highly successful interior designers. And it can be frustrating when you see this, but you have to sort of scratch your head and say, listen, some of us design, you know, very high-end, one-of-a-kind sort of properties, one-of-a-kind projects, and and that's what the, your clientele is paying for. And it's not for everyone. You know, the masses, most people are never going to be able to afford that level of design, but they can replicate some of the stuff that they're seeing on Instagram. And so what these people are doing, these quote influencers are doing that are untrained, but are highly successful is they're giving inspiration to a mass amount of people. Like you don't get millions of followers if you're not striking a chord and providing value to them. So it's interesting. Like it may not be your taste as a designer. We may poo poo it or may be frustrated by it, but we should look at it and learn from it because there's, there's gold to mine from there. You know, there's information there where you go, Hmm, you know, this is just another dynamic shift in business. And you either get with the program or you get run over. You know, you get left behind. <laughs> you know what? It's so. it's so true. And it's interesting because in, in that context, you don't know that you've been left behind because yeah. you're, you're so busy with your head down, you know, running in circles that you don't see that, that the the trajectory, the, the path has changed. And, and speaking of that, I, I think... Um, you know, one of the things I was really excited to talk to you about, take me through the anatomy of licensing. I think some people consider it to be a very simple, but not easy, right? I don't, mm-hmm. I think it's neither simple nor easy. I, I think so much goes into finding that, that, that right thing, that niche, mm-hmm. that element, the, the unique element that makes it special and then branding it and packaging it and marketing it and and putting it out there in such a way that people can actually see true value. Um, take me take me through the anatomy of of a licensing partnership. That how does it make sense? How do you find good partners? How do you how do you how do you take what you do and make one plus one equal three? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I I look at our most successful licensing deals and really all of our relationships in licensing as a marriage. So the way we structure our deals is typically multi-year and there's there's different ways to put together licensing deals. So you could do a one-off thing, you know, maybe you're a designer and, you know, you have a great chair idea or you designed a custom piece of furniture for a client and now you want to go ahead and license that piece um, or you have an idea for a pattern design, you know, and and it's sort of singular or it's a a small collection or a collection. But your goal, I think some of it is assessing your goals. You know, your goal is to just sort of find a manufacturer for that thing or that collection. So you could sign a non-exclusive licensing deal, sort of getting that piece to a manufacturer who has distribution and you're sort of in it um, as gravy, you know, a little bit of cash flow maybe that comes in from that deal and not too much else behind it. Um, and that, I think those are probably more common for the interior design world, you know, where you have a, a designer um, developing product that is, you know, again, customized that they're going to just sort of take and leverage into something else. And so those would be one-off, and I wouldn't get too carried away with, like, worrying about what the deals look like because, you know, it's, it's kind of a one and done situation, right? It's, it's a feather in the cap. Maybe it's a little gravy money. It's, you know, you can go out and have a, as my grandmother would say, you could go buy yourself an ice cream with it. You know, it's not <laughs> no one's sending a kid to college, but you know, take them for ice cream. So, you know, if you're an interior designer and you have sort of the one off thing, you, know, you find a manufacturer, you cut a simple licensing deal and the licensing deal basically looks like this you're allowing them to use your intellectual property, your design. Maybe you're allowing them to use your name or your image to promote the design. And then you set a fee for what that is. You set the time period for what that looks like, how many years you're going to allow them to license it. And 
where they're allowed to sell it. So you kind of define your terms. I highly recommend using a lawyer for these things. They exist. You want somebody who, you know, knows intellectual property or IP as their specialty. And then they help you create a, a term sheet. You negotiate the terms and you put your deal together. Um, and that's one very simple way to do licensing. What we do, though, because I really built a secondary business on product licensing, is we're really looking for a long-term marriage. So when you are asking what the anatomy of our deal is, we're looking for a partner that we could be married to for many, many years. Um, And so we have contracts at this point that are going on 14, 15 years relationships that we just keep renewing five years at a clip. And those deals are very different because many times we don't have the things designed yet. We're agreeing to partner together to create the collections that they will come out with. And then we agree to update those collections a set number of times a year or a set number of times throughout the term of the contract. And so it really is a deeper investment. Um, We typically sign our deals where we're also licensing to them one of our trademarks. So I own various trademarks, um, whether it's our commercial trademark or I have a couple for the residential community. One is called Stay by Stacey Garcia, and we license that exclusively to QVC. And then one is called Stacy Garcia Home, and we're rolling those out. So we sort of decide on the trademark, what market they're going to sell to, and then sign a deal. Again, typically our average license deal is between three and five years. And so you're, we're really looking for a marriage where you're going to be committed to, to having this thing be successful. I will say um, we're, we're trying to get smarter also because I think – as designers, again, we're creatives, many of us, and I don't want to lump everybody in because I've met people who just I'm so impressed by um, their business thought process. But so many of us really went down this path because, like like I said in the beginning, hey, man, I'm an artist in my soul. Like, I love being creative. I love being a designer. And so many of my fellow designers, I think, would echo that. I think the challenge is we're forced to then learn how to put on our business hats. And it's it's a challenging to sort of um, thing to have your the left brain right brain working in sync, and there's that push pull like the creative in me wants to say yes to every great creative opportunity that there is like oh wow we could do this with this company and look at their technology you know look at how they do this or they're gonna pour they're gonna hand you know they're gonna mouth blow these glass pe-, you know whatever it is it's like it's always these crazy things <laughs> and like you sell like one ever in the history right. <laughs> I mean, right. like because who the hell can afford an 18,000 mouth blown you know what I mean like it's it's not you don't have a big market for it so I think there's always that challenge when you're in the game of licensing and in the business of licensing at this point at least for the way we're handling it is that we're looking for the right partners who can hold the integrity of what our vision is but also that we can come to the table and understand that they they need to be inched. Like they're hiring us to move them forward into some new space that they didn't come up with themselves. You know, they want to be pushed. It's almost like hiring a personal trainer, right? They're asking for us to push them outside of their design comfort zone. But we also want to make sure we're partnering with companies who have great distribution because there's nothing sadder than like being an artist, being a designer, being a musician, writing the best piece of music you've ever written or designing the most beautiful chair you've ever designed and then like no one ever gets to sit in it you know so those are the the sort of cautions to say if you're asking the anatomy of a great relationship people first it's who are you going to be doing business with you have to have a very high trust you have to like the people you have to believe in them and their company they have to respect your creative vision and the integrity that you're bringing as a designer and then but the due diligence piece is looking at, okay, well, how does this go to market? You know, where does this price? Who can afford it? What's our aim? If our aim is to design, you know, three in the world and they're collectible items, great. You know, then go for it. If your aim is to serve more people, you have to make sure that you're asking those business questions. You know, what's the distribution look like? How are we going to get this to the market? Do you ever have trouble separating the business side and the creative side? Because... I, I think that I'm I'm listening to you talk, and it's really interesting to me to to hear a, a very you've got a very clear roadmap, but at the same time you're a creator at heart and in mind, and and the product always comes first. And sometimes the creative side and the business side don't always match. 
and sometimes you have to walk away and sometimes it doesn't make sense but at the same time you so you so desperately want to create that you know i think that's how a lot of people get into making some bad decisions how do you separate the two sides I mean, listen, we've been asked to design crazy things. Like, I'm thinking about a conversation I had. This was, you know, many years ago already. But, you know, an offer to sort of and, – and maybe it was the dumbest thing I said. No, You know, maybe it was the worst thing I ever said no to. But it was to design toilets. You know, like, can we put your patterns on the inside of toilets? And I was like, you know what? No, you can't. No. Um, we're not going to have people, like, defecating on our design. Like, that, to me, right that minute didn't make sense. But – you know, it, it wasn't in line with where our brand was. But I don't know. Maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe, like, you know, gold line toilets. Like, I know there's a market for. Um, so I think it always has to sort of make sense, like you said, from what your brand positioning is, the level of market, what's your goal. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there there are some times also that I've said yes to things I knew we probably wouldn't sell many of, but it was a great branding opportunity. It was a great creative exercise or it got us into a new market that we wouldn't have been in otherwise. And so sometimes you make decisions to take a loss leader. Like, yeah, you know, we're going to take this and, and we don't have, you know, the leverage to cut the deal the way we would want it to be cut, but we're going to do it anyway because then you can grow your market share. Well, and here's, so, some, you know, here's something really, really smart that you did. <clears throat> really smart that you did is you've siloed the business into into at least the four categories that I see here, the four brands, the pillars. You've got Stacey Garcia, you've got Stacey Garcia New York, you've got Stay, you've got Stacey Garcia Home, and each one of them has a different element, and it seems like that's what you're using to place the ideas. Why did you, yeah. go, why did you go that route instead of one basic premise with a bunch of subcategories under the same brand? I mean, some of it was sort of necessity. So, you know, if you're licensed in one area and it's an exclusive, and we've done that, you know, if it's a five-year contract and it's an exclusive, um, then either your hands are tied and you can't do any more licensing or you create secondary trademarks. So sometimes the rationale is that. I mean, I talked about my internship at Ralph Lauren, but if you look at that company and how they've, categorize their trademarks, they've done the same thing, right? Like, so if they have RL brand at Macy's, you know, or Polo at Macy's, and, you know, some Macy's may have an exclusive, they took chaps to Kohl's so that they could sell the same pair of khakis under a different Ralph Lauren brand. Um, And so sometimes it's in order to expand your reach and still honor and respect and protect the license agreements you have in place, right, to not step on those. So we've done some of that. Some of it was, like you said, it's verticals. Like we have the Stacey Garcia main brand as a commercial brand. It's a, We sell a lot into hospitality. The product itself meets fire codes. It's not high-end residential feeling. You know, it doesn't play in that arena primarily, and so we wanted it to be um, labeled as such so that designers who maybe have firms that are doing both commercial and residential would understand when they see this logo, it meets commercial standards. If they see, you know, one of the other logos, we're cool for residential, but don't put it in a hotel. And so, you know, some of it for us, because we're dealing in interior products and commercial codes, you know, that was one of the reasons too. And then it allows us to play up and down market, you know, which is really fun. Again, coming from the hospitality industry, we weren't segmenting out, like we didn't say, oh, this is Stacey Garcia Lux, this is Stacey Garcia Five Star, this is, you know, we, it was, here's our hospitality and commercial brand, it's our blue label, that's it. It, it means that it meets specs and codes for, for commercial end use. Um, but if you look at hotel owners and the way that industry is sectored, you might have an ownership group or you might have a brand, you know, who they own a JW Marriott and then they own a limited service property. You know, they, they own um, a Conrad Hilton, and they also own a Hampton Inn. And so there's different levels of market. Like you can stay within brand. Like you can you can be a franchise owner of Hilton, stay within brand, and own limited service, you know, select service, a long-term, you know, kind of play, and, and a five-star, and all, have all that in your portfolio. Um, we wanted to be able to do that in residential, too, to say, look, there's different levels of residential there are designers who work on different levels of residential. Like we talked about earlier, how technology has changed the idea of being an influencer who gets the deal. 
but it's also changed the way that consumers interact with designers. And so we can work with designers that are working with clients that they got on the internet and it's a virtual gig. And we work with designers who are very high touch and, you know, they're, they're designing the eight properties for their two clients, you know, cause they have multiple homes and we work with designers who are designing boutique hotels and resorts. And so we had these verticals and, and created different trademarks also so that we could very clearly explain to the community, all right, this brand means this. You know, this brand means mass residential, but it's inspired by hotels. You know, this brand is not mass residential. It's better, you know, it's a, it's a good quality. It's the next level up, but we're going to sell through trade and retail. And so that was sort of the reason for coming up with multiple trademarks. And I notice, I notice IP. I always notice IP. You, mm-hmm. you your IP game is strong. Um, Thank you. Uh, I see a couple of things that I wanted to point out that I think are really interesting. So mm-hmm. you, you've got the TM, you've got the Circle R. Difference, difference being, you know, a trademark is one that's either new or in process or or in commercial use, but hasn't been registered with the USPTO, the US De- uh, Department of Trade, and. Mm-hmm. Um, the Circle R is one that's been registered. So you're you're protecting your IP on that side. One of the, the other things that you do is on your Instagram, I noticed that when, when you're pushing out images, mm-hmm. you you credit the photographer, you credit the architect, you credit the designer, which is something that is so important. So clearly IP is very important to you. And I guess with with what you do, it really has to be because those are very expensive mistakes to make. How? Yeah. How, but by the same token, you could also go down the rabbit hole and pay IP attorneys forever to do things. <laughs> and we do. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I imagine you yeah. do. But how do you, how do you mitigate the, the, the amount of money going out so that it's not cost prohibitive. How do you manage that process? Because it is so important. Yeah. And, and we're, it's interesting because we also, you know, over the course of the 15 years, since I've really been playing pretty strong in the licensing game, we've expanded into global markets. So we're not just protecting IP in the United States. We're, we're having to register per category in various countries. So, you know, certainly as we scale the costs of, um, defense, you know, continues to go up, but it's, that's what it is. You know, you're trying to create kind of a really strong barrier so that you're protecting your brand, you're protecting your IP and you're protecting the companies that are signing with you. You know, that's, that's part of what you bring to the table. I think that's a great question. Um, is designers also, they go into these, these things and hopefully they're hiring a lawyer to guide them. But the nuances of the contract many times say, we're going to license you my name or my trademark or my my design. And then you're basically most of the time saying, well, part of that gig is um, indemnifying you, the manufacturer, you know, you, the licensee, so that I'm taking the heat if something goes wrong, if I'm accused of an infringement or if I, you know, I'm not properly um, owning these trademarks or these copyrights or these patents. And and so I, I always caution designers to say, just make sure that your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. You know, getting copyrights is relatively inexpensive. Um, trademarking is a more expensive gig, but it's it's worth it. Um, Amazon actually just sort of as a side note, one of the lawyers, and we have multiple <laughs> different things, but one of the IP attorneys that we use was chosen by Amazon to be one of a handful of lawyers who anyone who's selling on Amazon who wants to do trademarks can work with at sort of like this discounted rate, um, which is really interesting because Amazon wants people protecting themselves and and being able to defend it and, and trying to offer these small business owners um, a way to get into it and kind of remove that cost barrier, you know, making it a little more affordable. So it's important um, to know. Well, and, it, and it is important to protect. It, it is. And it's it's also one of those things where, you know, and this is where it goes back to having an education and understanding, deciding to protect your intellectual property is a, is a choice, should be a choice. Not defending your IP 
should be something that you make a choice to do or not to do, not that you don't do because you don't know it or you're you're infringing on somebody else's and you're getting yourself into something that you really don't know. I had a, I had a conversation years ago with, there was a whole group of us, designers and architects, we were at Modernism Week years ago mm-hmm. at dinner and, and some were a little overserved and but we were having yeah, we were having the best those are the best conversations oh this was good <laughs> there were tears we were having a conversation about um protecting one's design not even traipsing over somebody else's ip but but protecting what one creates and this architect looks at me and she said why would i want to why would i want to you know, file for intellectual property over something that I created for somebody else that they paid me for. And I thought about it. And, you know, my my background is in broadcast and brand development. I got into this because I had an opportunity to, and I've always loved architecture and design, and I don't possess the skill to to be a designer or architect. But I love it, and I wanted to surround myself with it. But being a, a, a brander and a marketer, it upset me. It upset me because, and this is probably you know four or five years ago, and it ups- yeah. it, it upset me because, as a creator, I, I'm a creator. I, I have a podcast, and I create copyright, which which you know is automatically protected. But if you want to defend it, then you have to register it. That's a choice. Yes. To well, you don't have to. Um, you would have to prove that you were the first one, but. It is defendable. It is much easier to defend it if you hold copyright. Well, no, no. But my my point is with copyright in particular, is mm-hmm. you once you know once you say it once it's once the copyright is is activated it once it's put out in the world, then you have that copyright. But if you want to defend it legally, then yeah. you then you have to register it. So you have to yeah. register it first. It's just a process. It's just it's not hard to do. It's just a step yep. that if you don't know. It's not going to happen. But with trademark, it's so much different because you have to prove that you were to market and that you were using it in the marketplace. And then you have to register. For, like you said, it's it's not terribly expensive, but there is a cost. And it's per category. So like we, you know, we signed a license agreement um, for accessories, you know, with an accessories company. It's a pretty vast array of products. So it's everything from like vases to some lighting, um, some accent tables, mirrors, all these different things that, you know, seemed really simple when we signed the license agreement. It was like, yeah, no problem. They have factories all over the world. You know, they can take the ideas, they can have the stuff manufactured and accessories seemed like it made sense as a category, which it did from a licensing perspective. What I didn't know (laughs) at the time was that it was like, with the scope of what we were licensing or what we were going to produce, little boxes, this, that, and the other, I think we had to trademark three times because it was it ended up falling into three different categories just for the one deal. Yeah. So it you know it cost me triple the amount for the for the contract in order to protect my trademarks in those in all the categories. So those are things you know again you don't know until you know and um, you know you get smarter at and you get better at and. You can put language in that says, you know, we're not necessarily saying we are uh, trademarked in every jurisdiction across the world if it's a worldwide contract. Um, but to your point, if you want to be able to defend, then you really need to proactively hold copyrights and trademarks. And it's interesting. I mean, listen, we've gone to court over um, infringements Have that you? we've that we've protected. Yeah. That, you know, I mean, our, our things did, and it was interesting because sort of, um, what ended up happening is we went through a period where it almost felt like every four or five months, something else was crossing my desk. It was like, damn it. They, you know, our pattern got stolen again. Um, we lost a bid, you know, I mean, the hotel cruise world, it is really competitive because you're talking about hundreds of thousands or million dollar opportunities. Um, for these projects, you know, you do a thousand room property, it could be a million dollars worth of goods. You do a large cruise ship, you know, it's, there's a lot of money at stake. And, and so, you know, it was like all these things are crossing my desk and I'm going, I can't believe, you know, our stuff got knocked off again. And we started aggressively pursuing, um, suits to defend our copyrights. And what happened was we started winning them and then we stopped getting copied. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> amazing isn't so, it it is and and we laugh listen there are some like i will never see the money on you know it's like you spend a, a chunk of change defending it and going to court you know we've won maximum 
um, amounts on some of them. You know, so the maximum per design is $150,000 in damages. And then part of what we can assert, you know, in that, so just kind of uh, on the other side of it or on the flip side, is in technically it's stolen goods, right? So like there was a hotel that basically produced um, a knockoff, a copy of our design and um, had it manufactured somewhere else, not through our licensed um, manufacturing company. And they installed it in the property. And so part of the suit allowed us, if we chose to, to force them to remove the stolen goods from their property. And that would have, you know, put them, they would have had to be closing their doors to rip out carpet. It's like, it's just so not worth it for them. Um, and so we ended up taking a settlement with them on that one. But you start to develop a little bit of a, a reputation that, you know, she's not going to mess around. And even though I know, again, I'll never recoup those dollars. Like I wish it was a money-making event, but it wasn't. What it did was it, it was a good mechanism to prevent other companies from, you know, to, to steal our design. And let's be clear about something. Idea theft is neither new nor something that can be contained. If you if you have if you are a creator and you have good ideas, at some point in time, it's happened to you. It's happened to me. It's happened to all the designers and architects that are that are listening to this. At mm-hmm. some at some point, an idea you have is going to be stolen. It's going to be taken. It's going to be manipulated and changed. You have a choice. You have a lot of choices. The choice is to defend, not defend, protect, not protect, or let it affect your life. Or decide that as a creator. You you can do more, but I think you know. For me, it's always been do what you can to to always have the power on your side of the of the ledger, right? Mm-hmm. And know that if you decide to go into you know if if you go in if you the moment I've had designers tell me this before, product designers, the moment that they put a a, a project out there to bid. There's there's already somebody in China who's who's working on something almost exactly like it. Right. It's almost instantaneous. Right. And and so part of it is you have to keep ten steps ahead. <laughs> right. Creatively. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. at some point that that copied stuff just it looks like a cheap version and it looks old. Yeah. You know, and so the the challenge is when it's a direct copy, and we've had some of that where it's like wow, this is really, <laughs> looks like a close sister to it. Um, and, and that's where, you know, we get, we, we get serious about it. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, for people listening out there, you know, the first start would be a cease and desist letter. They don't work really well. So just sort of know that if you really want to get people to pay attention, you do have to take it to court. I mean, it's the quickest way for us to get response is to file a court. So one of the other projects that you have, not a project, but a brand extension is Lifestyled, right? Yeah. So you're, you're a publisher too. I am. I guess I could think of myself that way. Yes, I, we are. And um, it really started, it's funny, it kind of, um, it originally started as our newsletter. It wasn't branded. It was more like Daisy Garcia newsletter. Um, and then over the years, it evolved. Um, and we had, you know, some really aggressive plans for it at one point and we found that gee like unless we really want to turn it into truly like a revenue generating publication where we have people selling against it and and can afford to pump these out you know 12 times a year what we're going to do is really focus on putting out great blog content and then twice a year do this sort of digital publication and it became it, it more from an newsletter on like, here's what we're doing as a company. And it really became, like you said, a a publication, um, an online publication and blog where we were able to build community and we were able to reach out and build relationships with other interesting people and really just have it as a platform to highlight them and their work, you know, very similar to what you're doing with your podcast. Um, it was just a great way to get to know new people and, you know, new restaurants and new hotels and new designers and new product people. So it's been, it's been really fun, you know, and it's, it's entree to have conversations with people and, um, be able to help shine the spotlight on, you know, some really wonderful creative work. And I think it's fascinating too, because the way that the shelter space trade publications, um, the, 
you can't rely because you know everyone is scaling back you can't rely mm-hmm. on your story getting out there you know you have to you have if if you're a professional if you're a creator if you're a creative professional you have to work your your publicist you have to you have to have a professional out there working for you but at the same time the narrative has kind of been hijacked you know social media i think is is the is the culprit here it's a blessing and a curse the narrative has been hijacked because whatever someone with the biggest megaphone says is on trend right now it's on trend right now because others pick it up because the echo chamber is just so vast so yeah. for you as a creator with your own line with your own extension to create a a public channel to distribute content that you know you get to create the narrative there i think it's really powerful the question i have for you is how do you how do you manage the time with everything else you do there's this as a as a business owner too there's this balance that you have to strike where staffing and clients and product and product development r&d the time to write the time to shoot the time to do all of this how how do you manage that process yeah i think it's it's always evolving um and again like i said you know when we started it we were doing six issues a year and then we had a goal to grow it to 12 and we realized that it was exactly like you said you know just sort of a massive um time consuming project because designers tend to be perfectionists what <laughs> I know. So, you know, it was like there was no one in this office that was going to let a publication go out that was anything less than 100% gorgeous, drool-worthy, and perfect. And that takes a lot of time, and there's a lot of pressure in that. And so we ended up scaling it back and saying, listen, this is really, it's a passion project, you know, and, and each one has a theme, and it's an interesting theme. And, you know, so each issue, you know, it was like the fearless issue. And like you said, it's the wellness issue. And you know, the the travel issue, there's all always through a different lens, always through that narrative, like you said, of what's in, in our psyche that we're interested in covering. Um, and so it, it sort of became what we decided it was going to be. And so, you know, like you said, as a business owner, it was making that decision that, you know, it can still be a passion project. It can still be this great way to build community. It could still provide value to the people who read it and see it. And, and it can be in a pace that feels more comfortable to our business. Last, last question I have for you mm-hmm. is, and I really do appreciate the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. I feel like you can tell a lot about a person by their social media. Okay. And I, I think you've said this before, but when it comes to color, I mean, you can tell that you have a love affair going with color. And oh, yeah. and what's what's really striking to me is as I continue to go through this, you know, go through your feed on Instagram, it doesn't seem like you have a maybe you do have a favorite color, but it doesn't feel that way in your design. You have this fearless approach to implementing all all different shapes, styles, some you know, I'm looking at a rainbow rug with I'm looking at a room that just exploded it's like it's like a bag of jelly bellies exploded in this room in a good right. way it's amazing you don't seem to have a favorite color in particular you just need to have a lot of color in every space have you always been like that and do you do, do your clients ever get intimidated by that sometimes when it comes to color you have to talk people down a little bit how do yeah. you, tell me tell me about the tell me about this this thing with color yeah i think like you said i i definitely have built a reputation of being known for bold use of color um i i do it's funny my first boss after ralph lauren um or actually my second boss was this guy tony and he would joke when we would be out you know doing client presentations etc and he would say you know stacy never met a color she didn't like um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's true um and i had a professor who used to say you know there are no bad colors there's just sort of combinations that seem off 
And so really, I think that's what gets me going is sort of really striking the right balance and the right chord with how to combine color so that it does what you want it to do, right? It's like a tool in your toolbox that you can be purpose, you know, purposely using analogous palette um, to try to create something that feels more serene. You can purposely be using colors that contrast because you want to have excitement or pop in a space. And I think color, um, from a, a human perspective, when we see things, color is one of the first things that moves us emotionally. And so for me, I think there's always been that really emotional attachment to how color interplays, how it makes you feel, um, what combinations, you know, you can use that are interesting, what combinations people will respond to um, in their choices, you know, in their full interior spaces or even on more of a microcosm, like in a rug, in a textile and how that's going to be used or how that sets the stage. I mean, we design fabrics that I know interior designers can take one of our fabric designs and riff a whole room off of it. You know, that becomes kind of the jumping off point to create everything. So it's really fun um, to see how powerful color is and, and really, you know, how it is a translator. It's kind of like this universal language. And does it kind of give you this, it, it, I'm just imagining, I'm kind of thinking through this, it kind of probably gives you this unique sense of accomplishment when you see what other designers do with your product. Always. I mean, for me, it is such an honor to be able to work in a field where professionals, again, whether they are formally trained or they have earned their you know, stripes through apprenticeship in the school of hard knocks. Um, they all have my respect. And I think, you know, for me, it's just an honor to be able to service professional clientele. It's also been really fun to be able to make the leap now into selling product to consumers, you know, direct to consumer on channels like QVC. You know, I go on, we create collections for that retailer and then I get to go on air and, and tell my story and, and try to make a connection with the homeowner, you know, with the person who's, you know, hopefully moved to say, wow, you know what, those pillows are fabulous. You know, I need some of those. Or um, Because at the end of the day, like, design is a language. You know, it's, it's something that connects us as people. And when you elevate your space, whether it's in a hotel or in your own personal home, you are making that space welcoming. You know, you're making that space a place of comfort, a place of reprieve, a place that you feel good in and that your family feels good in and that you can really welcome guests, again, whether it's your own family or friends that you're going to entertain. And so I'm always honored when, you know, designers and, and today now consumers choose to use our product in their projects and in their homes. Well, listen, Stacy. Thank you so much for the time. This was this was fantastic. I really appreciate it. And you know, I'm just I'm sorry. I'm going back and I'm thinking about one thing in particular. Um, yeah. After all of the, we talked about so much, but one of the things that I I find absolutely fascinating and and so different is you know when your example with the toilet, right? Yeah. Here's what's interesting. You didn't say no. You said not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I, I usually don't close doors fully. <laughs> well, and, and Unless it's completely off skew with my moral compass. I, I usually, that's very interesting that you're echoing that back to me. Um, because listen, I wear a sales hat too sometimes, you know, just like many designers, you have to first get the client, you have to get people to say yes. Um, and you have to develop a thick skin because you hear a lot of no. And I've, joked with people and I've mentored people and um, done talks. And one of the things I always share, like one of my secrets to success is that I actually don't subscribe to no. Like I don't believe in it and I don't ever hear it. So when people say no to me, no comes out of their mouth. What goes into my ear is not yet, not today, <laughs> maybe in the future, not under these circumstances, yeah. perhaps later. And, and so Unless somebody literally says, stop calling me, <laughs> like, and even then I'm like, well, listen, if you ever move on to another situation or should the opportunity arise in the future, like, don't forget my number. You know, I'll check back with you next year. Um, and so I think you have to have a level of persistence where your own mind filters that out. So if I said, not yet, you know, not, you know, not today, that's very interesting. And that's really uh, speaks to how I function, you know, on the 
the opportunity side of, of the business. And I think that comes from believing so much in what I bring to the table, my team brings to the table and anyone who's successful, you have to have a, a belief. It's not just a passion for what you do, but a belief that what you do will better the people that you want to bring it to. And that's really where it comes from, right? It's not because I don't go into any pitches going like, what can I get out of this? Like, Ooh, counting dollar signs. Cause that's a hell no. Every time. You have to go in wanting to add value to whoever it is you're pitching to and truly believing in your heart you can help them get to where they want to go. Yeah, and because of you, I'm adding something to my list, mm-hmm. um, and that is that the most successful people that I've, that I've spoken to, you know, you don't do it by yourself. You got to get a little bit lucky. You got to put in the work. And I, and I think something else is they, they tend to open more doors than they close. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I think that's good advice. I do. And you don't take no for an answer, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it is every single time when you look at the people, any industry, I don't care what it is, the people who made it, the ones who made it are the ones who didn't fucking give up. They are the ones who just stood it out the longest. They, they had grit. They persevered. They did not take no for an answer. <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. I truly appreciate the time and your insights. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for your continued support of Convo by Design. And thank you for listening. Convo by Design would not exist were it not for you. So thank you. Make sure you're following along on Instagram, Convo by Design with an X, and subscribe to the show everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Until next week, be well and keep creating.